Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning. Glad that you're here with us. If you are a visitor, you are most welcome. We are glad you're here. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, we're delighted that you joined us today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 13. This morning we'll be in Acts 13, verses 13 to 52. If you are new with us, you should know that we are making our way through a series on the book of Acts. And this morning that means we are in Acts chapter 13, verses 13 to 52. Let me pray, and then we'll get to it. Uh, Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. Your kindness displayed in giving us your word that we might know you more. And we pray this morning that that's exactly what would happen, that through the preaching of your word, we would come to know you more. That as we see the early church in action, in Acts chapter 13, that we would grow in our desire to share the good news, that we would grow in our love for the good news, that we would have a desire to make the good news known to others. Father, we are so grateful that in your kindness to us, you did give us your word, and we pray this morning that we would take it seriously. Oh Lord, please help me to be faithful to preach your word in a way that's honoring to you. And I pray for those who are listening that they would have ears to hear today. The Lord, that you would speak loudly and clearly through your word. It's in Christ's name we pray all this. Amen. Well, the first sermon I ever preached in a church, church worship setting took place on a Sunday night in front of a small congregation at LaGrange Baptist Church in LaGrange, Kentucky. I was 27 years oldish at the time, and in retrospect, I really didn't know what I was doing. I was passionate about Christ. I was a decent communicator, at least decent enough to get an invitation to preach. But at the time, if I'm looking back and I'm honest, I don't think I really understood how to put a sermon together. Now, some of you might say, I'm still not sure if you figured that out. That's fair. That may be true. But whatever struggles I have now, trust me, they're nothing compared to then. Objectively, I'd have to say that my first sermon in the church setting was a bit of a train wreck. I was nervous. I was not as prepared as I needed to be. The sermon lacked clear organization. And worst of all, I think I probably missed the main point of the text. Now, thankfully, I don't think I taught anything that was heretical that day or anything that was inconsistent with the overall message of the Bible, but in hindsight, I just didn't preach that text well. And even in the moment, I think I sensed that. Sometimes when you're speaking in public, you get the feeling as you're speaking that things are not going the way that you'd hoped. That is a terrible feeling, by the way. And for me, that feeling is usually accompanied by large amounts of sweat and an overarching sense of dread. This is not going well. I'm pretty sure that night I had that feeling because I distinctly remember walking out of the church feeling really, really deflated. Now looking back, I think God used that moment and he actually used it to spur me on in my preaching. Because of that night at LaGrange Baptist Church, I had to reevaluate the way I preached and the way I prepared to preach. And that reevaluation process was healthy and good, but getting there was painful. My first sermon preaching experience was rough. But rough as it may have been, that experience came back to my mind this week. And the reason why I did so is because in Acts 13, we find Paul's first recorded sermon. Now, I have no doubt that Paul had probably preached on other occasions prior to this speech recorded in Acts 13. In fact, all the way back in Acts 9, we're told that he was already proclaiming the word. I also have no doubt that the words recorded here in Acts 13 are an abbreviated version of what Paul actually said. Nevertheless, it's Paul's first recorded speech in the book of Acts. And needless to say, it's a much more helpful first sermon than the first sermon I preached at the Grange Baptist Church. And it's my prayer that God would use this sermon of Paul's and the events that surround it this morning to help us better understand and love the good news of Jesus Christ. So that's that. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to walk through the text, and as we do so, I want you to see that there are three sections, three sections, and I want us to consider each of the three sections. First, the setting of Paul's sermon. Secondly, the content of his sermon. And lastly, the crowd's response. And after we've done that, after we've walked through the text, 
I want us to think about what takeaways we might walk away with this morning. So let's start by just walking through the text with the first section, which is the setting of Paul's sermon. We find this in verses 13 to 15 of Acts chapter 13. Verse 13 says this, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went to the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So in verse 13 here, we're told that Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, which is on the island of Cyprus. They made their way northwest to Perga and Pamphylia. Perga was located nine miles inland on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, on the southern coast of what is now modern-day Turkey. Now, we don't know much about what happened in Perga, other than that John, who's oftentimes referred to as John Mark or Mark, left Paul and his companions in Perga and returned to Jerusalem. That decision of John Mark, which Luke mentions in passing here in Acts 13, will become a major point of contention later in the book of Acts. More specifically, something about John Mark's departure clearly rubbed Paul the wrong way, to the point that John, or excuse me, that Paul and Barnabas would split ways over their evaluation of John Mark's character. That said, we don't know why John Mark left. All we know here in Acts chapter 13 is that he did leave. And after he left, Paul and his companions continued on from Perga to Antioch and Pisidia. Now it's worth noting that this Antioch is not the same Antioch that was mentioned back in chapter 11. In the ancient world, there were at least 16 cities named Antioch, which the Syrian king Seleucus had named in honor of his father Antiochus. The Antioch that's mentioned here in verse 14 was known as Pisidian Antioch because it was situated near the region of Pisidia, although technically it lay in the region of Fergia and belonged to the kingdom of Galatia. Nevertheless, it was a hundred long and dangerous miles to the north of Perga. The road from Perga to Pisidian Anak traversed through the Tarsus Mountains and was known to be haunted by roadside bandits. Thus, the journey to Pisidian Anak would have been a treacherous one. And I think that's something we often discount as we read, as we read accounts like this one. Because we live in a modern age where we can easily hop in the car and travel 100 miles and think nothing of it, we tend to read passages like this and think, oh, it's no big deal to travel 100 miles. Just like it's no big deal for us to travel to Grand Island or, or maybe some other similar distance location for a school event or a business meeting, thus we assume, well, it's no big deal for them to travel 100 miles either. But to think in that way is to neglect the historical context of the situation. In the ancient world, to travel from Perga to Pisidian Antioch would have been risky. Not only risky, it would have been dangerous and potentially even life-threatening. And yet Paul and his companions make this journey because they are that serious about advancing the good news of Jesus Christ. And indeed, make no mistake, that was their goal, to advance the good news of Jesus Christ, to proclaim Christ far and wide. And that's evident immediately in this passage. Because upon arriving in Pisidian Antioch, Paul and his companions make their way to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, a typical synagogue service would include prayer, a reading from the Old Testament law, a reading from the uh, Old Testament prophets, and then perhaps a sermon or a homily. And it's in that context that the rulers of the synagogue invite Paul to share a word with the crowd that's assembled. And that brings us to the second portion of the text, which is the content of Paul's sermon. Now again, I don't think we should assume that the entirety of Paul's sermon is recorded in verses 16 to 41. It seems highly unlikely he only spoke for two minutes. So what we have here in verses 16 to 41 is likely a summary version of Paul's sermon. 
Nevertheless, this sermon gives us great insight, or this summary gives us great insight into the content of Paul's preaching. And in the case of this particular sermon, I think there are four key points that Paul tries to drive home to his audience. And the first point is found in verses 16 to 25, and that's this. Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Again, I think there are four key points he's driving home. The first is Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, verses 16 to 25. says this, So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he removed them, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So similar to Stephen's speech all the way back in Acts 7, Paul starts his sermon by taking a brief historical journey through the Old Testament and through the history of Israel. He mentions that God chose the Israelites, that God led the Israelites out of Egypt, that God put up with the Israelites in the wilderness, and that God gave the people their land as an inheritance. He then moves on to talk briefly about the period of judges and Israel's desire for a king, which was satisfied when God gave Israel Saul. Now, of course, if you know anything about the history of the Old Testament, Saul's kingdom did not last forever. And eventually, he was replaced by David. God raised up David to be the king. And it's from that mention of King David that Paul makes a beeline to Jesus. Paul points out in verse 23 that Jesus is the promised offspring of David. He's the forever king from the line of David that was promised all the way back in 2 Samuel 7. He is the Christ or the Messiah. Now, we've said this before and we'll say it again. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is a title. It means he's the anointed one, the one that was promised in the Old Testament that would rescue the people from their sin. So what we're saying then is this. Jesus is not a departure from the storyline of the Old Testament or a departure from the faith of the Israelites. Rather, he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises and he's the long-awaited Savior that was promised to the people of God. So that's Paul's first key point in his sermon at the synagogue, that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. But secondly, Paul wants us to also see, or wants his audience to see, that Jesus died and rose again. This is found in verses 26 to 37. Verse 26, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who'd come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to their fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he'd served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So again, the overarching point here, verses 26 to 37, is that Jesus died, 
but then he was raised from the dead. This is summarized very succinctly in verses 28 to 31. In verses 28 to 31, Paul lays out the facts of Jesus' death and resurrection. That the religious leaders asked Pilate to execute Jesus. That they killed him, took him down from the cross, laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to his disciples. This is a very similar mentioning of facts that Paul does also in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. But notice also here in Acts 13 that he supports those facts about Jesus' death and resurrection with multiple quotations and allusions from the Old Testament. In verse 27, he talks about the rulers unknowingly fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures by putting Jesus to death. In verse 29, he talks about the people carrying out all that was written about the Messiah in the Old Testament. And then in verses 33 to 35, Paul quotes three Old Testament passages. Psalm 2-7, Isaiah 55-3, Psalm 16-10, to make the point that the resurrection of the Messiah was prophesied about in the Old Testament, and thus Jesus being raised from the dead proves he was the Messiah. David died and his body was corrupted or decayed, but Jesus did not see the same type of corruption because God raised him from the dead. And again, this is the second key point Paul is trying to drive home, that Jesus is the Messiah, that was first, but also that he died and rose again. Thirdly, though, Paul wants his audience to understand that forgiveness is found in Jesus Christ. This is in verses 38 and 39. Verse 38, or verse 38, excuse me. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So it's not just that Jesus was the promised Messiah, it's that Jesus died, or it's, and it's not just that Jesus died and rose again, it's that through Christ we can find forgiveness of sins, and we can be freed from our slavery to sin. What the law could not do, set us free from our bondage and penalty of sin, Christ did. Jesus died on the cross as our substitute. He's willing to take our sin and give us his righteousness. This is known as the great exchange. He takes our sin, he gives us his righteousness, if only we'll come to him in saving faith. But we must come to him in saving faith, which brings, to the conclusion, brings us to the conclusion of Paul's sermon, his fourth point, we must respond to the good news about Jesus in saving faith. Verses 40 and 41. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Now in verses 38 and 39, Paul implicitly encouraged his listeners, come to Jesus in saving faith in order that they might find forgiveness of sins and justification. Justification simply means that we're declared to be not guilty. But now in verses 40 and 41, he comes at it in a negative way, and he warns of the danger of not responding to the good news about Jesus. And he does so by quoting from Habakkuk 1.5. The point of the Habakkuk 1.5 passage is that failure to embrace what God is doing leads to judgment. And the clear implication here in Acts 13 is that God is doing something through Jesus. And thus, if you reject Jesus, you too will face the judgment of God. Or again, to say it more simply, Paul is calling for a response to the good news. Either you embrace the work of Christ and you find forgiveness of sins and peace with God, or you reject the work of Christ, and you will face the judgment of God. And to be clear, and this is still true today, those are the only two options. Either you embrace Jesus, or you reject him. There is no middle ground. I think that's a really hard reality for many in our culture to comprehend. I think many around us, including perhaps many in this room, are under the impression that there is a third way, a middle way, 
And that middle ground is that you don't necessarily have to embrace Jesus, but if you're just a good person and you have a general belief in God, that's enough to avoid the judgment of God. But the Bible speaks of no such middle ground. Either you turn to Jesus in saving faith and thus find forgiveness of sins and peace with God, or you fail to embrace the good news about Jesus and thus you are still caught in the bondage of your sin and subject to the eternal wrath of God. Those are the only two options. Think about it this way. If the doctor called you tomorrow and informed you that you have a life-threatening condition. They'd run some tests, now the tests have come back, and they realize you have a life-threatening condition, and you must be treated immediately with surgery, or else death is imminent. You are going to die in the next week or two. At that point, you only have two options. You get the surgery and live, or you don't get the surgery and you die. In this scenario, there is no middle ground. And if the situation is as dire as I just described it, you can't think to yourself, oh, there, there's a middle ground. I'll just try to eat healthier. Or I'll just try to rest more. Or I'll try to exercise the next couple of weeks. Not in this scenario. Either you get a surgery and you live, or you don't get the surgery and you die. There is no middle option. In the same way, when it comes to Christ, there is no middle ground. And to think that there is a middle ground, I'll just try to be a good enough person. Or I'll just try to be religious. To think in that way is to ignore reality. It's to reject Christ. As Paul alludes to in verse 39, you can't be freed from the bondage to sin by obeying the law and being a good person. It's not possible. Only by trusting in Christ can you be rescued. You must respond to the good news in saving faith. By the way, for some of you in this room, that is an extraordinarily relevant message. You have never trusted in Christ. Maybe you're religious. Maybe you're a good person. But that is not enough. The only way you can be rescued is through the work of Christ. It's not what you do, it's what Christ has done. And so if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, let me plead with you. Embrace the good news about Jesus. And make no mistake, Jesus is the substance of the good news. Only by trusting in Christ can you be rescued. You must respond to the good news in saving faith. So that's the content of Paul's sermon. That Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Jesus died and rose again. Forgiveness is found in Jesus. And you must respond to the good news in saving faith. And that content certainly produces a reaction from the crowd, which brings us to the third and final portion of this passage. And that's the crowd's response to the sermon. We find this in verses 42 to 52. Verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now in verses 42 to 52, we clearly see that the response to Paul's message was varied. 
Some responded with enthusiasm and even great saving faith. As the text tells us, some were begging to hear the good news again. In fact, on the next Sabbath, we're told almost the whole city gathers to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Gentiles hear the word of the Lord, they rejoice. They glorify the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed for eternal life believed. But while some responded to the message in that way, with great joy and enthusiasm, even saving faith, others responded with jealousy and anger to the point that they stirred up trouble and persecution for Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the city. Now, to Paul and Barnabas' credit, this persecution does not deter them in the least. They simply shake the dust off their shoes, they move on to the next town, and they continue the mission of preaching the good news about Christ. And as they do so, we're told at the very end of this passage, they were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. And that's the way the passage ends. Persecution is increasing, the gospel is advancing, and the disciples are filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Now, having said all that, and having examined the setting of the sermon and the content of the sermon, the response to the sermon, the question still remains for us this morning, what do we do with this? Now, obviously, Paul's first recorded sermon is much more eventful than most first sermons. I can certainly attest to this. No one was begging to hear more of my preaching the next Sunday after my first sermon. And on the other hand, I can also attest widespread persecution did not break out after my preaching either. So there's definitely something unique and something unusual going on here in Acts 13. But again, the question is, what do we do with this? As we think about Paul's first recorded sermon, what takeaways are there for us? As always, I think there are a lot of ways we could answer that question. Let me just offer up a few this morning. Takeaway number one, the substance of the good news is Jesus. That's the first takeaway. The substance of the good news is Jesus. Paul covers a lot of ground in the content of this sermon, even if it is an abbreviated version of what he said. But all of the content, you'll note, points to Jesus. Remember, all four aspects. Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Jesus died and rose again. Forgiveness of sins is found in Jesus. You must respond to the good news about Jesus and saving faith. You'll note the common denominator there. It is Jesus. There's simply no way to read Paul's sermon and come to any other conclusion other than the fact that the substance of the good news is Jesus. Now, to be sure, it's worth noting that to make that point, Paul quotes four Old Testament scriptures in his sermon, and he alludes to countless more Old Testament scriptures throughout his sermon, too. But what we need to know is that all of those scriptures are serving to highlight the larger point, which is Jesus is the substance of the good news. Now, the fact that Paul uses Old Testament scriptures to make that point is noteworthy, but it should not surprise us. In Luke 24, Jesus himself pointed out how the Old Testament law and prophets and psalms all pointed to him. And in that, I think there's certainly something to be said for us about the importance of preaching from both the Old and New Testament, as both Testaments point to Christ. It's one book with one message. But again, the larger point we're making here in the context of this passage is this. Jesus is the substance of the good news. When given an opportunity to preach the good news, Paul does not say, be a good person, try to help others. He does not say, believe in God and be a productive citizen, or be more religious, attend more religious services. Instead, he points to one place, to Jesus, because Jesus is the substance of the good news. Without Jesus, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without Jesus, there is no peace with God. Without Jesus, there is no freedom from sin, and without Jesus, there is no eternal life. Jesus is the substance of the good news, and we cannot and we must not forget that. 
I was talking with a guy recently, he doesn't go here to this church, but this guy claims to be a follower of Christ, and the more I talked to him, it became obvious that his perception of the Christian life had little or nothing to do with Jesus. In his mind, being a good person was the key to the Christian life. Furthermore, he was clearly more interested in making a difference politically than he was in actually advancing the kingdom of God or sharing the good news of Christ with others. Now listen, I, I don't know this guy's heart. I have no idea where he actually stands with Christ. Based on our conversation, I would have some concerns. But again, I, I don't know where he actually stands. Perhaps he really knows Jesus. I hope he does. But I think what I can say is this. At the very least, this particular gentleman had clearly lost sight of the substance of the good news. The substance of the good news, again, is not be a good person or go to church more often or be more religious or, or let's get this person elected. No, the substance of the good news is Christ. And that's the good news that we should be proclaiming to others. Parents, hear this. We are not trying to raise our kids to be moral and church going. We are trying to help them see and savor the good news about Christ. Now, if they embrace the good news about Christ, I have no doubt that they'll develop a love for the church and a desire to do what's right. But those outcomes are not the goal. Rather, they are a product of the goal. The goal is to help our kids see the beauty of Christ. And for that matter, the goal is that we would see the beauty of Christ too. As much as our kids need to be pointed to Christ, we need to remind ourselves that Jesus is the substance of the good news. Because Jesus being the substance of the good news has implications for so many different areas in life. For example, some of you in this room are carrying around immense emotional guilt and baggage because of past sinful choices. Maybe you got caught up in the culture of sexual promiscuity and you did some things that you still regret to this day. Or maybe you were addicted to pornography. Or maybe you've struggled with drug and alcohol abuse. Or maybe you've said some things in anger that you regret with every fiber of your being. Or maybe you did something years ago that you're afraid to even whisper out loud in a room by yourself, let alone tell someone else. Or maybe you're struggling with some combination of all those things even currently. If that's you, you need to remember this morning the substance of the good news is Jesus. The substance of the good news is not make amends for your past sins or do enough to outweigh your past choices with good choices or make sure that you try to fix everything that you've wronged in the past. No, the substance of the good news is Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Jesus rose from the dead and conquered death. And in Christ Jesus, those who have trusted in him have no condemnation. And when I say no condemnation, I mean zero, zilch, zip. That's Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you came in here this morning carrying this emotional guilt and baggage, let me encourage you this morning to remember that Jesus is the substance of the good news, and in Christ there is no condemnation. That is an amazing thing. Jesus is the substance of the good news, and we must never depart from it. There should never come a point where we say, oh, I've heard enough about Jesus, let's just move on. That would be like saying, I've had enough of breathing oxygen, let's try to breathe another element. Or, I've had enough of my heart pumping blood, let's just rip it out and see if the kidney can do the job instead. I mean, I guess you could say breathing oxygen or your heart pumping blood, that's old news. That's true, right? It is old news. But just because it's old news doesn't mean it's good, not good news, and it doesn't mean that we don't still need it. Church, let us never grow tired of saying this, Jesus is the good news. Just because that's true doesn't mean everyone will embrace it. And that brings us to the second takeaway from this passage. The good news will often bring opposition. Or the, the second takeaway, the good news will often bring opposition. 
Verses 44 and 45, we see this clearly. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. We see this again in verses 49 and 50. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. Here's the reality I think we often fail to understand. There is a spiritual war that is taking place around us. And the enemy is doing everything he can to blind us to the good news of the gospel. On top of that, our sinful natures cloud our thinking as well. We don't think we need Jesus because in our pride, we think, wow, we don't really need someone to rescue us. Furthermore, the world around us is actively trying to keep us from seeing the beauty of Christ too. So when you take all three of those factors into account, the spiritual war around us, our own sinful nature, the world that is trying to corrupt us, it's no wonder then that there will be opposition to the message about Jesus Christ. People do not want to hear that they are a sinner in need of grace. People don't want to admit that they need rescued and they can't do it on their own. People do not want to bow their knee to the king. And because that's the case, because our sinful nature doesn't let us see our need for Christ, opposition to the good news is and will be real until the day Jesus returns. Even as this text reminds us, they killed Jesus. So if they killed Jesus, the one perfect one who ever walked on the face of this earth, we should not be surprised if they oppose his message or his followers. And understanding that, I would argue, actually keeps us from despair and discouragement. Think about it this way. If you signed up for the military expecting that everyone fought wars with Nerf guns, but then later realized people shoot actual bullets and use actual bombs, that would be pretty discouraging. At some point you might think, I don't know if I want to do this. But if you signed up for the military with the right expectation, well, they're actually going to shoot real bullets. They're actually going to use real bombs. You won't be near as discouraged when you face those weapons because it's what you expected. Now, spiritually speaking, I don't know why this is the case, but I think some of us have been under the impression that the spiritual battle we are in is kind of like a Nerf gun war. Sure, people might be opposed to Jesus, but they're going to be nice to us. But the reality of Scripture is we are not in a Nerf war. Our enemy is real and out to get us with real spiritual weapons. So we should not be surprised when the world around us is opposed to what the Bible teaches or discouraged as if that's something strange. We should not be discouraged either when we see news headlines that are directly opposing what the Bible teaches. This should not surprise us. And it shouldn't surprise us if eventually opponents of the gospel come for our money, our jobs, our freedom, or even our lives. Listen, we're not in a Nerf gun battle with our cousin who wants to plunk us with a few Nerf balls. We're in a battle against the prince of darkness who is trying to destroy our souls. Of course there will be opposition. But as Paul models for us in this passage, that doesn't mean we stop waging the war. It doesn't mean we go run and hide. It doesn't mean we cry, curl up in the fetal position and just cry. Instead, we keep proclaiming Christ. We keep trusting God and we keep pressing on in our faith because, in part, Despite opposition, the good news is still good news. And that's the third and final takeaway from this passage, that despite opposition, the good news is still good news. Listen, it's true. Opposition to the gospel is real. It's true. It seems pretty evident, given the direction that we're headed in, that we are going to face some very tangible opposition in the days to come. But that doesn't change the fact that the good news is still good news. 
In fact, I want you to look at the way that some in this passage respond to the message of the good news because their response highlights how good the good news is. Look at verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. Verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Here's a question I have for you this morning. When was the last time you begged to hear the good news about Jesus again? When was the last time you saw a whole city gather around to hear the news about Christ? When was the last time you rejoiced and glorified the word of the Lord because you were so happy to be included in the good news? Here's the thing. Because we've grown up around Christianity, because we've grown up in a culture where there's a church on every corner, because we've heard about Jesus on many different occasions, most, most of us have started to forget how good the good news actually is. A couple of weeks ago, I flew with Tony and Dawson to Denver for Dawson's chemotherapy treatment. We got to go on a small plane with a, poly, a pilot who volunteered his time in his plane as part of a service organization that helps kids with big medical needs called Angel Flights. It's a really cool organization. And I have to say that going on that small plane was a really interesting experience for me for multiple reasons. First of all, it was interesting for my stomach and my nerves. I was way more nervous than I thought I would be. But the plane ride was also interesting because of the pilot. Our pilot was a fascinating guy, and he really, at one point in the flight, decided he wanted to explain to me all the mechanics of flying. Now, I'll say this. I was interested. I've always wondered how planes work. But I also have to be honest in saying I'm still not sure how they work even after he explained it to me. My brain just does not work that way. He tried really hard. I just didn't get it. Nevertheless, as he was talking, the thing I found myself thinking about was the Wright brothers. And I kept thinking to myself how those guys who were the first to get credit for flying a plane must have felt the first time a plane lifted off the ground. I mean, can you imagine being one of the Wright brothers? Here you are going, and all of a sudden you're like, I'm actually flying. Now, of course, because we see planes every day, we don't stop to think about it. But that first flight must have been something else. That must have been a really good day for the Wright brothers. Can you imagine going home to the dinner table with their parents? Their parents are like, oh yeah, we were farming or doing whatever. And they're like, oh, we flew today. The only reason we don't get so excited about that is because we are so used to planes. In the same way, I would say this, because we hear a lot about Jesus, I think we've stopped hearing the good news as good news. But think about this this morning. There is a God who created us. And yet we've rebelled against him. We are his enemies. As such, we deserve his righteous wrath forever. Every person in this room, without exception. Every person in this room deserves hell. But the same God that we rebelled against provided a way for us to be rescued from our predicament. He sent his own son, his one and only son, to take the punishment that we deserved. That if we would turn to him in saving faith, we could be rescued. And not only rescued, the righteousness of God could be credited to our account and we could have eternal life with him forever. That is good news. Let us never grow tired of hearing that good news. We were dead, but now we're alive. We were lost, but now we're found. We were blind, but now we can see. We should beg to hear that good news more. We should rejoice every time we hear it, and we should seek to gather the city so they might hear it too. Now, to be sure, for anyone to embrace the good news about Christ is a work of God. As verse 48 reminds us, salvation comes by God's appointment. It's those who appointed for eternal life who believe. But that does not stop Paul from calling for a response. 
Nor should it stop us from sowing the seed. While God may be the one who does the rescue, our job is simply to sow the seed and then let God do the work. And given the substance of the good news, my question is, why wouldn't we sow the seed? Why wouldn't we tell others about Christ? Because we have the best news possible. And really, I think if I were to try to sum up the point of the passage, I think I would say this. Even though the gospel may bring opposition, the good news of Jesus Christ is still good news that should be celebrated and proclaimed. And indeed, it should be celebrated and proclaimed far and wide. Because it's not just good news for you or me. It's good news for all people everywhere. So let us delight in the good news this morning. And let us proclaim the good news far and wide. Let's pray. God, we thank you. I feel like that's always my first response after walking through your word, is just to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder here of the substance of the good news. Oh, it's true. We were wicked sinners. It's also true that Jesus is a great Savior. I pray this morning that we would see that good news for what it is, that we would remember that Jesus is the substance of the good news. It's not about being a good person. It's about what Jesus did. Lord, we, rec- we pray that and recognize that there will be opposition, but we pray that we would hold fast to the message anyway. And that we would remember that the good news is good news. And that we would celebrate that news and we would proclaim it far and wide. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.